you cannot replace is the relationship piece that educators need to have with students. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is someone who, if we were at the Fox Cabaret doing Nerd Night, she'd probably be drinking an old-fashioned? That's correct! Yes. You know my drink! And I would not have eaten dinner, <laughs> so it would have been getting real messy real fast. Yeah, don't we miss those nights when we'd get up there, we'd tr- cruise in right after work, not eat dinner, drink like three cocktails, and then be like, what just happened? We just did a science night to 150 people. I mean, and that's one of the nice things about the podcast. We can still be drinking. So right now, what are you, are you drinking anything? I'm having wine. Oh, I've just got my soda water because I'm, you know, I've got to keep it together. I fall, I fall apart when I drink. Well, let me tell you, you're about to really fall apart <laughs> because I'm about to introduce our guest. So today we're joined by Sultan Rana and Sultan is a Toronto-based educator and education technology specialist who teaches soon-to-be educators at York University's Faculty of Education. Hi, Sultan. How are you doing? I'm good. You know, that uh, line of that I fall apart when I drink, that actually could be an R&B song. So I, I appreciate that. There's, there's so much inspiration coming from this already. I would love to see you specifically create that song, Michael, actually. <laughs> so to start off, Sultan, okay, you've taught lots of kidlets yeah. and all the grades of the kidlets, and, uh, and now you're teaching adults. So how does your approach to teaching change? I mean, as I got older, I generally just see adults as large children. But like, does your does your teaching approach change? No, I think you I think you hit it on the head there. I think you hit it on the head. You know, with children, you sit in a I would say you sit in a, a space where you are a lot more calm, a lot more patient. You realize that there's a developmental piece there. There's an experience piece there. There's a, you know, a latent trauma piece that they don't even know that they're going through and enduring that you have to be cognizant and aware of so that when a kid wows out or acts up or whatever, you don't look at them like, oh, you're such a bad kid. You actually have to sit there and think to yourself, like, what are you going through? Like, what are you deprived of right now that you're, you're trying to get with this this outburst. And I know that sounds, you know, to some people, it sounds like you're not looking through a, the traditional mindset of, of what a teacher should look through. But um, it's it's different with kids. You are actually playing a role in their their cognitive development. So everything you do creates a memory. Everything you put them through is an experience they may have never had before. And so you just have to be very delicate with that. With adults, you're, what you are dealing with is a quarter of a lifetime of experiences that have rooted that person in some of the things that make them rigid, entitled, difficult to work with, living in a space where they believe they're right. And you, because they paid for their education, because you're training them, and because you have the you have the belief in your heart as an educator that everyone can learn and everyone can, can be better than they are and everyone can improve, if you wholly believe that, you have to hold that kind of truth to that adult as well. It's more difficult because they are often a lot more secure in how they feel or they believe themselves a little bit more than they believe you. They take heed and and position their experiences over yours or over your insight. And you just have to navigate that sometimes. And and it's um it's interesting for sure. But I'm happy to say like I am a 
cluster F of a human being. And I've been there and done that. And like, I, I can often see myself and my arrogance of who I used to be and probably still am uh, in them. So I, I just live with a little bit more patience. Uh, so Sultan, you specialize in tech education. Now, when I say that word out loud, I mean, it's kind of weird. The first thing that comes in my brain is the original Nintendo game, Donkey Kong Math. I don't know why <laughs> this, but um, could you tell us how you got interested in tech education specifically? And maybe even like talk about like how you would define tech education. Yeah, <laughs> I think, well, you pull it to Donkey Kong Math. I now think back to like, I don't know. We had this game. We had this game on Commodore 64 in our classrooms called Cross Country Canada, where it was just like a truck that would just travel across Canada and pick up resources and pick up products from different cities. And we had to guess what city it's coming from. It's like, you just picked up pigs and we're in Ontario. Where could you get this? I'm like, Stratford. Anyways, that's what I think about when you said Donkey Kong Math. I think it roots into, like, as a child, I always was a little bit enamored by computers. I've never been enamored by the programming side of it and how you can create something out of nothing. I was more kind of taken aback by the communicative and the collaborative abilities of, of technology. So before it became unfashionable, before 9-11, I, can, I used to be able to admit to everyone that I used to go to this really amazing Muslim camp every single year. And at that camp, where we did campy-like things like canoeing and arts and crafts, I had my, like, my boys were there. Like, my closest friends of my life were at that camp that I got to see once a year um, from ages 7 to 12. Like, these are still my, like, they were in my wedding party. Like, that's how close I was with these guys. So when I hit 12 years old and everyone started getting email, it blew my mind that we no longer had to write the, each other these letters where that one exciting day, once every two months, we'd get that letter from each other and then we'd write back and send it. And back then, mail post took at least two weeks, right? Like, things changed for me when, when email was invented. Things went bananas for me when ICQ was invented. Things um, went upside down, topsy-turvy when Skype was invented. <laughs> like I just, my, 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 my circle that I so desperately missed as a child was coming closer and closer to me because technology was making it easier and easier for me. So I've always just been really enamored by the communicative abilities of technology and how it can get a message out, connect people, and do it for a low or limited or no cost. Yeah. So, so that was where it all kind of started. And then as I became an educator, I realized that the utilization or integration of technology made my job easier. There were things that teachers were doing that, you know, in an analog fashion or a paper-based fashion that not only was it harder in the, in the process, you know, be it from something as limited as photocopying to something as uh, more intensive as like looking through various assessments and whatnot, not looking, not using programs to help you highlight certain information or anything like that. Yeah, from seeing seeing what technology could do to my practice and make my practice actually easier, and not easier so that I just have a wicked easy job as a teacher, but create and make more time for me to do better and more enriching and engaging things. That's what I think was like the aha like atomic bomb that went off in my head when it came to the use of technology because i just realized like we are wasting like copious amounts of time in classroom with these kids in one space doing shit with them that we could easily have them do somewhere else on their own in a faster more expedited way 
if we utilize technology. And then when we actually are lucky enough to have the privilege to be together in a space, and we only, like now in COVID times, when we talk about the privilege of being together, like it means something totally different. But in the early 2000s, when I was like, look, I only get these kids for six hours a day in a room. Why am I keeping them for five and a half hours in that room, not talking to each other? Why am I doing things with them that I think they could do at home in a half hour's time? And I'm wasting that half hour here in person. Yeah. Let me leverage this time and do something else with it. So technology always gave me this this opportunity to utilize time differently. And that's kind of what the drive was. So Sultan, uh, where do you think, uh, now that you sort of like caught us up um, from when you were a kid to as an educator, where do you think tech education is now heading? And will we all just be sitting around in virtual reality machines where it's like we're sitting in virtual classrooms, like in uh, Bill and Ted University? Like, what? where do you think this is This is going here? Oh my gosh, I would attend that. I would not. I, like, unless Keanu Reeves is doing like a how to be good with your money and like give back to the world kind of class. I don't know. <laughs> you know what? Like that, that question is loaded because if we are talking... If we're entering into the conversation thinking about your mid-range student, that's probably, if I were to make any kind of assumptions about about you specifically, but like, you know, middle class, all needs met kind of people, that future looks different. Mm -hmm. And for kids who are uh, enduring poverty, that future looks different. For kids who are very rich and and, and have numerous resources to them, that, that reality looks really different. So... Another thing that pulled me into a digital education and education technology really was just the agency I felt like it had or the opportunities I felt like it had to minimize the divide between people who are enduring poverty and people who live the mainstream mediocre life that basically all governments plan for, all tax systems are made for, um, all programming is made for. Yeah. So I was really, I was also really just enamored with with what the possibilities are with technology and for students who, yeah, live in poverty or live in transient or destitute situations, uh, for kids who are refugees, for war-torn, war-torn contexts, people who are, you know, who don't have, who have precarious living situations. That's the, that's where I honed in on. And I think this conversation would look different if we weren't in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, but we didn't go that way. We didn't go that way. And now we're realizing now that now that we're re- relying fully on technology and we're making assumptions as to what people have, uh, we're realizing all those years we could have been vamping up access and opportunities and resources for people who, who endure poverty all across the world. Um, we didn't. And now while we are finding ourselves in a position where it seems like technology is going to be the answer for a while it can't be still for a whole group of people because their needs were they were never brought to the table and they were never thought of when it came to enfranchising these resources to them so where do i think it's going to go i think unquestionably now we have to like it's a reckoning we have to deal with who has access to technology that allows them to do certain things like at home learning like uh, satellite satellite based schooling we have to make sure we figure out who has it how do you get, how do you get it to them how do you get them to use it and have them have dependable and reliable resources that allow them to stay connected and i think once that gets figured out everything else then can start going to the you know the virtual reality experiences the the immersive education where you're not leaving your home or your room 
but you put on, you know, you could put on a full suit and actually be immersed in a sort of virtual experience. I, I think it could go there. It could go there, but I, I, I dare get excited about that when, and, and be rem- I'd be remiss to not bring up that we're in the red for a whole swath of people who don't have access, who live in, in isolated areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're forgetting about them as we always have done. And I, I don't want this conversation to not have them be included. So I think it, we, we can go far, but certain things need to be met first. Yeah. So yeah, there is a good chance that we will reconsider what school buildings are utilized for. I'm not going to say they're useless, but perhaps we don't keep living in the one desk per kid, 30 in a class paradigm anymore. I'd like to talk about, like, like maybe let's transition then back to equitable tech ed. Have you seen a movement toward that in your own experience, especially now as a teacher of teachers? Is there any platform that you're particularly excited about or any opportunities there that you think are exciting? I'm not going to pretend like I'm I'm completely up on everything that's happening when it comes to equitable access to, to technology and, and infrastructure. I've seen some things that always sound like good patch-up jobs. Like I know, I know in certain poverty-stricken districts in, in America, because they have the charter school system where they bus kids from sometimes close to two and a half hours from their home location to a totally different school because, you know, they won the lottery and, and you know, it's all about school choice and other massive amounts of bullshit like that. Mm-hmm. Some things that they've done to fill up the gaps or the painful journey between to and fro their house is make sure that there's Wi-Fi on the school buses. So what I've heard is that what they will actually do is that once they drive the kids to their neighborhood, um, hoping that they're in, the, in a geographic vicinity that's like not more than a block away from each other. They will actually park that Wi-Fi bus in the neighborhood for the entire night. So the kid, the kids uh, in that neighborhood have Wi-Fi access because that is not something that many of them can guarantee in their homes. So little things like that I hear, I'm like, oh, that's nice, but that's not sustainable. That's mm-hmm. not real infrastructural change. So I'm, I'm physically close to just the high needs areas around Toronto. And other than the pandemic encouraging, you know, lower or near free access to internet and schools who have closed down or who are giving students the option of staying at home, schools releasing and finally letting go of their technology and allowing it to go home with students. Other than that, I'm not hearing anything that I feel is totally like a paradigm shift from what we've had in the bef- have before. It's just like short-term solutions that could be quickly implemented and we'll plan the next time. Yeah. And I imagine too, like there's, I mean, all teachers are using different amounts of technology. And so this, this has affected them all differently and sort of navigating what that means for how they engage with their students is different. Well, yeah, it's it's well, it has a lot to do with your practice, right? Like for for when teachers fail to realize that when you teach, you can't substitute or or just transfer what you do without technology onto technology. For example, I'll, I'll give you the biggest difficulty that a lot of teachers and students who are on this doing virtual learning are going through. That these teachers are, you know, if they in an in-person on-site context would give students homework every single night. They would have them do silent reading in a classroom and they would have them then, you know, 20 minutes silent reading, then it's 30 minutes of journal writing, then it's going to be uh, an exercise break, and then we're going to do uh, think, pair, share games, all this stuff. You do that in an in-person context, you can do that and it's an okay program, but 
the thing is that teachers are now transferring that into a online virtual learning experience and it doesn't work out the same. Mm-hmm. And teachers are teaching exactly the same. I'm not speaking of all teachers, but just there is a good copious amount of teachers who do like once the cameras turn on, they speak to the camera for like 35, 40 minutes teaching these students who are just sitting there with their hands in their face, <laughs> waiting for this teacher to just stop talking while they're sitting listening to a talking head on a camera like you you can't engage with people in an online form like that so you know your whole practice the whole way in which you teach has to change in online form if anyone's wondering what i mean is that if you need to talk to students you need to talk for an a sustained 15 20 minute period of time for students then put your voice on a powerpoint presentation and email it to them or make a video and send it to them be like hey you don't need to look at me, but listen to me in the background while you wash dishes or do some push-ups at your house. And then when you come to class on Monday, the moment you come into class, I'm not saying a word. I'm immediately putting you in breakout rooms. I'd like you to all discuss this topic. Or I'd like you all to create a collective um, sketch note or, or visual graphic that represents you know, the video I sent you last week. Um, but the moment you, if you have people in an online space, you force people to come into a collaborative environment online, you better make it that collaborative. Don't be the talking head and talking to them. You should have utilized technology that records your voice and you should deliver that all to them so they could listen to it when they wanted to listen to it. But if you're going to like ask them to seclude synchronously an amount of time out of everyone's day at the exact same time, you better do something with that time. And do something that's interactive. Michael, are you reflecting on the Space Center and all the things that you... <laughs> is this what's happening for you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. This is like really hitting uh, me really hard right now because what we do at the Space Center is so interactive and our events that we've built up over the years have been built on let's get away from lecturing like they do at at universities. People are going to come to the Space Center because they want to have a conversation. They have heard something and they want to talk to a real person. And we have translated that onto online and it sort of works, but only for a very small amount of people. And what we have been founding, this is like a new realization that I need to get away from the mentality that we need to be engaging with so many amounts of people in real time. We need to uh, realize that when you're engaging with people in this online format, you're now going into their home and they have a whole other schedule. They have kids, they have spouses, they have things that they are dealing with when they're in that space. They're not in our space anymore. So we have to be on their time. So we create content now that needs to be digestible in smaller doses and uh, has rewatchability so that it's not like uh, happening right at two o'clock. We're going to post it at two o'clock, but they not watch it until a week later. Yeah. And, and so like that, that term is considered asynchronous, you know, just being able to plug and play on your leisure. Right. And, and it's, and you know, like you, you hit it on the head where it's like, you know, small digestible doses of this information, as opposed to like long lectures and like timing is timing is important time. It's again, it always goes back to, it always goes back to the concept of time that technology is best used when you're cognizant of time. It matters, you know, when and how often you kind of deliver messages through technology. Like one thing I've definitely learned this past week is um, if you 
inundate your class with messages. Keeping in mind, they have five, six other courses they're attending, but you, for whatever reason, your one measly course, you felt like it was necessary to message them four times in a week. That's annoying. Yeah. That's just ridiculous. That's overdoing it. You have to give them one dose, one dose. And as, unless it's like a near massive, like meltdown of some kind, um, which I kind of did have last week, which is why they <laughs> you have to be either consistent with timing in the sense of like, they always know on a Thursday, you're going to message them or something like that. Or you just realize that the frequency and how, how much you communicate with people has to be um, measured or else it, it's, it becomes overwhelming and it becomes, you become tedious and annoying because, because people do go through tech overload, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you have a very small window of time to work with people when they're fresh and ready to learn via a screen. But so time, time is the concept of time has to be looked at in like 20 different ways when it comes to teaching and using technology in education. So we've been talking about your experience with tech education, but in addition to your tech ed work, you're also to use your bio description that you sent to us, quote unquote, enthralled with education that's rooted in anti-racism and anti-oppression. And I've been thinking about that this week because I think that teachers' colleges actually would have an important role to play in that work because they're training teachers who in turn teach children and also work incredibly closely with their families. So I know you've also been involved in some of that training. So I was wondering if you might share what that looks like. So so yeah, I'll, I'll reframe because just because I don't train anyone specifically on how to use digital technology in classrooms. I integrate in everything I do. I'm actually at I was hired at York University to be the instructor of how to teach physical education in the primary, middle school, and intermediate, like primary school to middle school divisions. And mm-hmm. I was hired also to teach how to teach social studies in the primary to middle school um, divisions. But what I do is I everything in the practice is leveraged by technology. If it's not the way I'm teaching it, it's integrated heavily into the lectures or it's integrated heavily into the tools that I ask them to use when it comes to learning how to do assessment and evaluation of students mm. or record student uh, student progress, or it's uh, nestled deeply into the assignments, like where I force them to use a tool that would allow them to take their instructional practice or getting to know students to a different level. So the technology integration is always in the design. So just like education technology and me embedding it in everything I do, I also embed anti-oppression and anti-racism in everything I do. So in gym, in how to teach social studies specifically, because the atavism and the exoticism and the, the complete, like the, the amount of, of just really in-your-face racism that happens in social studies has really gone unchecked for years because everyone's so deeply in love with the pioneer unit and everyone's so deeply in love with making teepees out of uh, popsicle sticks that none of these things get interrupted because they play such a pivotal role in people's like good memories of their childhood. So there's just so many things to interrupt in, in these subjects. But on top of that, I also had the luxury last year of teaching a course called Diverse and Equitable Classrooms in Ontario, where you literally, uh, in a thematic way, have a full 12-course class where each class is, okay, everyone, today we're taking on homophobia, uh, forward slash queer theory. Today we're taking on anti-Black racism. Today we're taking on Islamophobia. Like you, we, that's how the class worked. And it it is, and it was, and it always will be a contentious thing to take on because, you know, in the spirit of Ibrahim X. Kendi, everybody in this system, in Canadian-American post-colonial system, everybody is one of two things. You are either a racist or you're an anti-racist. 
And there are certain actions that are bestowed onto those who can consider themselves anti-racist. And if you are absent of those actions, you are the the former. And you are not a racist in the trend in the the charged idea that a racist is a swastika wearing Nazi who attends clans meeting every week and who, you know, drops epithets at the at the drop of a dime and who detests the presence of somebody who is not of their race. That is not a racist. So so it's always so much work to get people to understand the real idea of what white supremacy means, what racism means, how are we all, com- all of us, including me, complicit in it and complicit in, in the oppression of various groups of people and various aspects of ourselves just to get by, just to get through the system, just to have access to resources, just to aspire and get to goals that we have. To take people through that and have them navigate that and to know you're complicit it derives a lot of shame. It derives a great deal of fragility in a lot of people. And then there's only two things that come out of that, either emotional outbursts or defiance and um, rejection of the topic. So this is where working with adults is very interesting because you meet them at a time in their life where they thought they had it all figured mm-hmm. out. They thought they had them figured out. And to put that on its head in a course where they're like, I thought we were just going to like learn how to like run charities in our class and like do fundraising. And like it, that's what I go through. And when you you shatter their preconceived notions, you shatter their 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 sense of who they think they are and the good person that they think that they are. That's another thing. It's very hard to work with people when you're standing on the ashes of who they once thought they were, right? <laughs> like it, it's you like and I'm obviously like I I say that with the intention and the objective to build them back up right with with knowing that Mm -hmm. you know if you thought you were going to come here as an empty vessel and be filled with knowledge like you got nothing coming teachers college and the faculty of education is in a massive amount of unlearning and then you learn Mm -hmm. right from the unlearning you know better right because everyone's played the game of school everyone thinks they got it figured out and uh, everyone has their preconceived notions of what it's supposed to look like. And in most cases, when you don't know, the best form of faking it till you make it is just replicate what you experience. And I tell, like, the first thing I say to, I say to every damn class I teach, I say, if any of you, whether it be positive or negative or just neutral, if any of you are here to in any way replicate your experience in the K-12 to world, like when you were in school, please get out. Like, please don't be here because whether or not you had a good time, you need to understand when you were in school, there were kids in the class that school did not speak to. There were kids in the class that that whole experience was pain and sadness and isolation. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy you had a good experience, but you have to understand that the same exact opportunities and things that were taught to you and presented to you that worked for you did not work catastrophically did not work for a lot of other students. And you need to realize that. And now that you're here, use that privilege to rewrite this, abolish whatever whatever ostracizes or isolates certain students and rewrite it so that there is entry points and a welcoming, valuing system or opportunity for everybody that you have in, the, in a classroom. Um, and that's what you're going to learn here. Mm-hmm. And that, that the learning you'll do will be violent. Like it will hurt you. It will be very uncomfortable. And I make it very clear that I will make a distinction in this class that I will guarantee all of you that you will be safe in this class. There will, no matter what the conversations are, you will always be 
physically safe and have no repercussions in your marks or in your trajectory in your career unless you're terrible for kids, unless you really hurt kids. Um, nothing will happen to you from conversations. But one thing I will not guarantee in this class is you will not be comfortable. Comfort is not guaranteed in this class. And discomfort is actually what I aspire for. Because as adults, it is that unlearning and that discomfort and that tension where real actual transformative learning happens for you mm -hmm. as opposed to as a child where you're like more in wonderment and experimentation as an adult it's the tension that you it's when you endure tension that 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 learning actually has far more transformative effects than if you were just like open you know perky and receptive so do you think like that training is ongoing at the university is it mandatory are they doing more of it are you seeing a movement towards more of it totally that course is mandatory like the diverse and equitable classrooms in ontario you you have to take it to graduate Good. you know one thing i'll say about professional programs um love it or love it or hate it in professional training programs it's very hard to fail out as long as you do anything. Mm. The reason I'm saying this is because, yes, it's mandatory, but by no means do I want anyone to think that anything that's mandatory in a training program means that we're actually reaching people. Right. Do not think for a second that because there's mandatory equity training happening at corporations, don't think for a second just because Starbucks shut down their doors for a day that every barista is now woke, right? Like it's training is one thing. Training is the opportunity to bring it to light and to show in a punch card fashion that this was done. But it doesn't mean you've incepted the idea in anyone's head. It doesn't mean you've changed behaviors. It doesn't mean you've, you've changed people. Relationships do that. Real conversations with people you trust do that. And I say that because uh, it doesn't matter what I said in that class. I know that there was white instructors who taught that class, who taught the exact, who literally took copies of my assignments with my permission to teach in their class and they were better received about what they were teaching and about what the assignment was asking than when I taught it and I wrote it. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. Yeah. That seems like really important work. Uh, speaking of, of learning and asking questions, should we let the nerd herd ask some questions? Oh, I want to hear what they have to ask. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve? Does anyone have free will? Why is like carbon based? Why do we keep it's time for listener questions. And if you want to get into the Nerd Herd questions, uh, we post questions on our social media at NerdNightYVR. You can also email us, Vancouver at NerdNight. And our first question comes from Promode, who wants to know what the university classroom is going to look like in a decade. I think it is going to be very much like what we're experiencing now, which will be all online. But I think they will have to beef it up because... You know, at the end of the day, universities are a business. So I think, you know, while we are all kind of like in the Zoom world right now, I think there will be like Ivy League schools that will actually deliver out like university office chairs that when you sit in, you become, you get, you know, get sucked into a pod. Oh and it's an immersive experience. And when you're in that pod, you will see classmates to your left, to your right, in front of you. You'll be in a, a digital lecture hall, but in the comfort of your own home. The, the commercial and the merchandise aspect is going to, skyrocket into a different way they're gonna they're going to figure out a way to make numerous more immersive um ways to to be a part of university one thing that i think we can't deny is if we go that way we will deprive an entire generation of young people the opportunity to move out of their house for the first time mm. don't get me wrong like individuals who clearly have enough money to 
go to university, I mean. But I'm just saying like that archetype that some middle class people have, that dream that I leave high school and then when I leave high school, I travel abroad to do something else, that I don't think that will um, will go away. So I think mixed with this satellite experience where you could sit in a chair and be immersed into a classroom, university campuses and spaces will be uh, just extremely different. I think lecture halls will not be lecture halls anymore. They will become multi-purpose spaces. I think space will be reconceived or reconceptualized to uh, to just kind of create almost like a, a real small thriving city inside of universities. A good model, actually, to be honest with you, is Ryerson. Uh, Ryerson University, they have a program where your whole degree is you need to be an entrepreneur. You need to actually create a startup business. And by the actual fourth year of your degree, you will have a, an actual sustaining, thriving business that you started up. That is what you leave the university with. So when they come to classes, they don't come to classes. They come to you know, small pods where they have these collaborative meetings and they got to like check their books and they need to talk about their investments. They need to talk about the next steps, their investors and all this stuff. So I think there'll be small, a small peppering of what it once used to be. But this whole idea of us going to lectures and sitting and listening, that will be done away with, in my opinion. That's probably good. Because when I sat in lectures anyway, mostly I just wrote notes to my friend. Mind you, that was also when texting wasn't really a thing. Oh my gosh, I'm so old and my lower back hurts. <laughs> Uh, so we have a we have another question talking about technology. So from Mev, who asks, uh, how can you ensure that diverse learners can achieve learning outcomes through a tech platform? You know, like that, the responsiveness of that will always be left to these conglomerate companies. Uh, if I was to like, like I'm not paid by anybody, and I'm you know all my certifications or whatever don't really matter in the sense of like they don't do anything to pay me on the side or anything. But I would say like a company that struggles in some way but figured out one way to find the niche market around um, accessibility is microsoft god help us if i ever use microsoft word ever again um online or anything like that uh, in comparison to google docs but when it comes to uh, accessibility when it comes to captioning to translation software to creating uh, spaces that are accessible to people with low vision uh, low vision capabilities uh, with dyslexia Microsoft is incredible. So I actually think we're not far from being completely inclusive of diverse learners in an online forum. But what I will say is that these companies and these education platforms need to bring programmers and practitioners to the table that have these disabilities to be there in the design process to say, yeah, that actually works. That's responsive to the needs of someone with that, that disability. There needs to be a first person experience in the design process to say you're meeting the needs of people. So my hope is that, you know, even going back to uh, Michael's earlier question, is that where will we be in the future? Is that I, I hope things change, but for things to be more inclusive, you actually have to be more inclusive in your your business, uh, your business model, in your hiring practices, in who your design team is, and who informs how you make things for a particular group of people. If you're trying to make software for people who have dys dyslexia, and not even 50% of your team has dyslexia, then what are you doing? Mm -hmm. So yeah, is there diverse platforms? Yes, there is. But I would say that at the end of the day, you still what you cannot replace is the relationship piece that educators need to have with students. Yeah. 
Oh, you want to nerd out? Oh, I'd love to nerd out. I'm like sweating to nerd out. What you nerding about? What you nerding about? All right, and you can get it on the Nerd Outs as well. Send us your Nerd Out at NerdNightYVR again on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Email us, Vancouver at NerdNight.com. And we'll do rapid fire because we've got a bunch uh, for this one. So Cody is nerding out about trees. Who is it? I know. Like we just did a, a program actually about Equinox about trees. Uh, really amazing. Britleaf is nerding out about the evidence of aliens. We talked about previous episode with Rakib. But Lorenda is nerding out about the Great Lakes. And I'd love to go around to try to figure out exactly what we think Lorenda is actually nerding out about when it comes to the Great Lakes. Sultan, what do you, what do you think Lorenda is nerding out about? I think Lorenda is nerding out about how she can start any Great Lake and find her way out to the Atlantic Ocean. What? Oh, in- I have zero Great Lake knowledge. Because <laughs> they're, like, I'm going to use the wrong word. They're, uh, was it trepidary? Or they each flow into each other. What is Whatever that term is. I forget. Uh, once upon a time, I was a geography teacher. But if you if you start from Superior, that flows into Huron, that connects to well through rivers, it'll connect to Erie, then Ontario, and then St. Lawrence, the ocean. Yeah, I think you're right. And you know what else? If you Google the picture of Lake Superior. It looks like a weird goblin face. I love like looking at a at a picture of Lake Superior. Can you picture it in your mind? I yeah. I, I remember I remember Owen Sound is connected to Lake uh, Lake Huron and uh, they said that Owen Sound is the elephant's asshole of the Great Lakes. <laughs> it's very specific. Because <laughs> it looks like an elephant, but right where Owen Sound is Poop. Sultan, what are you nerding out about? Oh man, I am nerding out about everything hip hop and R and B uh, from the '90s and the '80s, a little bit of the 2000s. It's a little hard for me to get into it now. I feel like the genres change, but that's what I'm nerding out about. Everything hip hop and R and B in the '90s is uh, I've nerded out about it even when I was in the '90s. The '90s is a great decade. <laughs> it is a very interesting decade. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, yeah. No, that's what I'm nerding out about, and it's uh, I, I desperately like I know. The, the listeners can't see me, but I'm going to show all of you on camera that I, I purchased in the middle of COVID. I purchased like a little DJ mix set oh, sweet. because I so badly just, I don't know. I guess it was with all the COVID DJs like, um, you know, D nice and, and quest love going on IG every night and like doing a live set for everyone who's like, you know, calling a club COVID. I was just enamored by it. I was enamored by like, the true art form of mixing music and beat matching and everything. And I always just felt like I would be good for that. So I've been trying my best to like teach myself, but my, my partner had a baby girl in May. So it just seems really self-centered to engage in a hobby while my partner is like up twice a night feeding and taking care of a child. I just can't do it. So not unless you can mix some sweet beats to put her to sleep. I will not lie to you. WAP is the song I rock my child to to put her to sleep. You know what? That's good. We all need like sex positivity in the world, empowered, strong women. <laughs> I'm all about it. And I think that's great. Michael, have you been dancing to some some WAP lately? Like what's up with you? What are you nerding about? I don't know what WAP is, but <laughs> I have been nerding out about something that relates to the 90s and Ooh. it's baseball cards and how that relates to innovation. So 
I just got a new job, actually, or a new project that I'm working on. So I'm going to be working with the BC Science Fair Foundation, and they are uh, have a big science fair, and we're going to be doing a bunch of monthly events, uh, engaging kids to come up with amazing innovations. And I'm also going to be hosting a brand new podcast, uh, which may be out by the time we release this, called the BC Science Fair Foundation Podcast, I think. Mm. So I think we haven't figured out the name yet. It's kind of long and rambly. But I've been t- finding... In these conversations with these uh, 14-year-old kids, you know, they're little bits of curiosity where they come up with these ideas for these innovations. And that kind of like inspires me in thinking about baseball cards because for me, when I was a kid, I loved baseball cards and that was my pathway into thinking about new ideas. But baseball cards are like dinosaurs. Nobody understands what they are anymore. Like a 10-year-old a kid asked me, why baseball cards? Like, what's the big deal? And why is the best question in the world? Why anything? And so to boil down to why baseball cards, you have to think about the audience for baseball cards. So I'm one audience member because I like the nostalgia of them. I like the the artness of them when you look at them. And then you also have the collectors that like the collectability of them. So you have like two main audiences. But in the 90s, baseball cards just like they just had this big rise and then internet came and it was like, baseball cards weren't relevant anymore. And now in 2020, believe it or not, baseball cards have made a resurgence. And there's this project called Project 2020. And what it's doing is it's tapping into the people like me that like the nostalgia of the baseball cards. And maybe in the pandemic, we were sitting at home and looking through all the stuff that we have, taking old baseball cards, remixing them, and basically cutting them up and making a brand new baseball card that is a very unique piece of art. Hmm. So it's taking these two audiences and they are now combining and has created this whole resurgence. And like there are certain cards in the Project 2020, they're now worth thousands of dollars because it is now a completely new piece of artwork. And it's uh, really amazing to sort of see um, that innovation. And that's kind of like what I'm doing now with my new job is, you know, talking with these kids, finding like those little weird bits of curiosity, innovation that may not relate to what they're doing, but it's like where it all starts. And that's, and for me, that was baseball cards. So that's what I'm nerdy out about. That's awesome. And there's also a, a very, uh, like a, a lottery or gambling aspect to card collecting as well because yeah so i was basketball cards but when you get that pack of basketball cards you get that pack and you open it like who knows what you're gonna get in there and it's like that excitement of like no no no. oh my god a rookie and you you like lose it's just it's a surge surge of excitement that you can't really describe and and you can't stop buying them either (laughs) so it was it was it was a problem i remember it definitely was a problem in the household the random household (laughs) So there's actually jargon for for people like you uh, in the industry, and I'm like learning so much about the industry now. Like you would be called a ripper because oh. you like to, you like to get the packs, you like to rip them open, and you like to search for those head, those hidden gems. Can I still keep the title if I also sniff the cards after? Ripper and sniffer. Oh yes, I love the smell of them. Yeah. No, I'm definitely like a Mary Catherine Gallagher level sniffer. <laughs> uh kaylee uh what do you like to sniff what do you like to nerd out about oh my gosh you know i was sniffing a nice glass of wine earlier so today i'm actually nerding out where the last little while i've actually been nerding out about a couple podcasts so there's a podcast called how to save a planet it's relatively new and it's all about climate change and how we can work to solve the climate change 
Crisis. And all of the episodes are fantastic. But the latest episode, I was introduced to another podcast that I'm also really enjoying. So in that last episode, uh, the hosts of How to Save a Planet, Dr. Ayanna Johnson and Alex Bloomberg, talk about making Republicans environmentalists again. So that part about being on the far right and being a denier of climate change was not always a reality. And they get into some of the history of that. And when folks on both the political right and the left agreed that climate change was an issue and that it should be solved, even if maybe they disagreed on like how to solve it. And in that episode, they reference another podcast called Drilled that I am really enjoying that gets into how some of the big oil companies went from a model of actually maybe leading the way in alternative energy into actively creating communications campaigns to convince the public that climate change was a hoax. So the story is like just freaking terrifying generally, but it's also an example of a very successful communications campaign and like educators, science communicators, like we know, right? It's all about Who's your audience? What's your message? How do you engage with them? How are you tracking your success? And holy smokes, did they ever have all of those things? And I think we can all agree that they've been incredibly successful. So my nerd out this week is to suggest that you listen to both those podcasts because they give a lot of history to how we got here, which is, (laughs) again, a little depressing, but also have a lot to teach us about you know, what we can do in the fight against climate change. Which is a callback to uh, one of our previous episodes. And if anyone wants to learn more, you can hear from Joanna Wagstaff on uh, on her battle with, uh, or her mm-hmm. podcast as well about climate change. Uh, Sultan, uh, thank you so much. This has been uh, an amazing nerd out evening uh, hanging out with you. And if more people want to learn more about uh, what you're doing, where can people find you uh, online? Well, I am. A, I sometimes tweet. Uh, <laughs> my uh, <laughs> handle is at Mr. M-I-S-T-E-R. R-A-N-A, so Mr. Rena. That's basically it. I really, I, I did start a an IG account to put on my musings of what I was, what I nerded out about, which is like hip hop and R&B. But I put up two posts and then felt really defeated after I only got like 10 follow, followers after a week and just said, F it, burn the internet. I don't care anymore. My passion sucks and everyone else sucks. So <laughs> it was, yeah, it's, I think it's called uh, the, the, musical musings of salty d i will i will uh, i you know what this podcast has given me vigor to to revisit so maybe i'll i'll I'll, i will rise out of i will rise out of the ashes like a phoenix and come back to nerding out about what i intended to nerd out about so if you want to marvel at the splendor of that phoenix and this uh, Instagram account that may or may not once again be lit on fire, so you can follow Salty D. And thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. And until next time, don't forget, it's all about making those meaningful relationships. Uh-huh.